Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. Uh, I'm Mark Quanstrom. And as we mentioned four weeks ago, the next three podcasts will be the introduction to uh, my course on seminary now titled Pastoral Ministry Calling and Resilience. And if you're interested in any one of these courses of many, go to seminarynow.com. But for the next three podcasts, we'll be talking about what it means to be a pastor, the call, and how to stay. the incredible privilege of mentoring and teaching those who are going into the ministry. I've been a pastor for 36 years and a professor and dean at a denominational university for a combined 16 years. And one of my responsibilities as pastor and professor and dean was to try to talk students out of going into the ministry. Now that might sound surprising to some of you, but for many of you that makes perfect sense. And it may be that some of you who are watching now may be wishing that somebody had talked you out of it. Frankly, I was always conflicted helping young men and women prepare for vocational pastoral ministry because I knew how difficult the calling it was. Two of our three sons are in the pastorate, and I never encouraged either of them to pursue pastoral ministry. On the contrary, Debbie, my wife, and I hoped that they would not go into the ministry. Now, I never discouraged them, I mean, I let them work that out with their Lord, but it was never our desire that they follow in their father's footsteps. Again, that might sound odd, but it was driven by a desire to protect my children from a very difficult vocation. The evidence of the difficulty of pastoral ministry, whether it be children's pastoral ministry, youth ministry, ministry of pastoral care or lead pastor, the evidence of the difficulty can be found in the rate of attrition. The best estimate is that 30% of the young people who go into ministry are not in ministry five years after they begin. And of course, an even greater percentage will not end their vocational career in pastoral ministry. So one of my responsibilities was to try to talk young people out of going into ministry because it's hard work, especially if you do it right. Pastoral ministry ranks as one of the hardest jobs in the world for at least seven reasons that I will mention, but I'm sure there are probably more. So why is it so hard? Why are there such a large percentage of pastors who do not stay in pastoral ministry? We'll start with the competencies needed to be a fruitful pastor. And I'm using the word fruitful instead of quote unquote successful or effective because it is first a biblical word, fruitful is, and secondly, because it doesn't carry the connotations that a corporate definition of success or effective carries that can sometimes burden pastors with expectations that are really irrelevant to our vocation. So we'll start with the most visible task. If you're a pastor who preaches, well, then you need to be able to preach. One of the most important tasks of a pastor is that of communicating effectively with the congregation and not just periodically, but week after week after week. Now, I don't know who thought it was a good idea to have part of the pastor's job description, the task of preaching or teaching almost every single Sunday of the year, but that responsibility alone should scare us to death. 
Of course, in order to preach or teach well, we probably ought to be able to exegete a biblical passage in the context of a theological perspective. That is, we need to know what the Bible says, and we need to know how the lens of our theological tradition influences the interpretation of a text. I mean, for example, take and eat, this is my body, has a different meaning for Roman Catholics than it does for Baptists. So being able to exegete a biblical passage in the context of a theological perspective is a competency necessary to preach and teach well. And that's just the subject matter of what it is we're teaching and preaching. If we're serious about the task, then we should probably know the dynamics of oral communication and, and how it is people hear what it is we are saying and how we say it impacts how they hear it. And then for some of us, we have to know how to put together a meaningful worship service or a meaningful youth hour, children's hour, with the volunteers or staff that we have. So we have to operate out of a theology of worship that informs the design of our worship service. And we probably ought to know how to administrate, that is run an organization and all that that entails, which means we will have to know how to enlist, train, and motivate people. We will have to be able to prioritize activities and ministries consistent with our mission. I mean, organizational leadership is a requisite skill for pastors who are fruitful. And if you're a pastor with limited or no staff, then you also need to be a competent building services person. You probably will need to be a web designer and be able to manage your social media presence. Then, of course, we have to be able to raise money. We have to know what motivates people to give. And after we raise money, we have to be able to balance a budget, live within our means, set financial priorities for the sake of the mission, and then account for the receipts for our stakeholders who are the congregants. And we have to be able to crisis counsel. I mean, pastors who aren't married will be asked to counsel those who are married. Pastors who have no children will be asked to help parents raise theirs. So ignorance of family relational dynamics is not an option when people are coming to you for help. We can and we should refer people to licensed counselors, of course, but we will be asked to speak into our congregants' lives. Of course, in this day of political perspective, co-opting the gospel, we have to know how to navigate the political climate in such a way that we don't alienate the people of our congregation with different political views, while at the same time being faithful to the prophetic nature of the gospel. We'll most likely need some skill at conflict management or conflict resolution if we're gonna lead a congregation of diverse and invested people. And on a personal level, we'll have to know how to manage our time we we'll have to be self-motivated because most parishioners have no idea what their pastor or pastoral staff does from week to week. I mean, the only one who really knows how we're spending our time is God. And we probably ought to be able to share the gospel and lead others into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I have very quickly just listed almost a dozen competencies that pastors need to have. And I'm very sure that I am overlooking some. And frankly, as I was reflecting on the competencies needed to pastor, I got a little intimidated myself. So one of the conversations we would have in the School of Theology at the denominational university in which I was dean was how much preparation should we be providing our students and what courses were most important. There was continual debate between the Bible profs and the theology profs and the practice profs regarding what was most important to teach. Every one of my professors said the students weren't getting enough of whatever it was they were teaching. 
And they were all correct, yes. But we only had them for four years and we couldn't keep them in school forever, which leads to a second reason pastoral ministry is such a difficult profession. Pastors live with a constant awareness of their own inadequacies. The pastors I talk to, most of whom are incredibly capable, confess that they are mostly aware of their inadequacy to do what the job requires, which leads me to say that awareness of our own inadequacy is a part of the job description, or at least it should be. And I'm thinking that if we aren't aware enough of our own inadequacies, then we're not aware enough. I mean, truthfully, who is competent to pastor? Who preaches or teaches well enough? When have we read enough books or listened to enough podcasts? So many pastors wrestle with the imposter syndrome, even if they've never heard of it. The imposter syndrome is defined briefly by others believing us to be more competent than we believe we are. Well, there's a good reason for pastors suffering from this. Believing oneself to be inadequate to the task is baked into the cake of the vocation. So a second reason it is a difficult job is because the enormity of the task inclines us to be regularly overwhelmed, which leads to a third reason why the vocation is so difficult. There is no agreed upon measurement of our success or our effectiveness, which words I said I wasn't gonna use due to the corporate baggage they carry. I mean, regardless, what is the measure of our quote unquote success? How are we to measure the fruit of our labor? I mean, other professions provide quantitative evidence of success or failure. I mean, when you're going to school, there are grades. If you're running a company, there's profit margin. If you're a landscaper, there's bushes planted and lawns cut. I mean, in many professions, there is tangible evidence of the work you're accomplishing. If you're a pastor, what is the quantifiable measure of success? Now, I know what the institutional church says. If you're a quote-unquote successful pastor, you'll be judged by the three Bs, bodies, buildings, and budgets, and by whether or not there are more of each every year. I know. I've attended 36 district assemblies. I know it gets rewarded. I have filled out those reports and had to write the number of those baptized this last year or saved or entirely sanctified. I mean, I've sometimes felt like a gunslinger who's supposed to notch his belt. So I know how the American church measures quote unquote success. So then if we reject the corporate business model definition of success, then what do we measure? How do you measure the increase of love and of God and neighbor? How do you measure the quality of relationships among your people? How do you measure the worth of the pastoral care of an Alzheimer's patient in a nursing home? Which leads to a fourth reason, the work's never done. For the conscientious pastor, there are very few days that one goes home with the feeling that there was absolutely nothing left to do. Now I know that's not necessarily unique to the pastorate. Lots of people working very difficult jobs have to learn to just stop. I mean, others live their jobs 24 hours a day. But I wanna say it has a different weight for pastors given the responsibility we have been entrusted with. I mean, who couldn't work over the sermon just one more time? What pastor doesn't have just one more person to tend to? What pastor doesn't have another book to read? 
Furthermore, the people we serve have no idea how much we've already given. So I tell my pastoral ministry students that the church will take everything they have to give. And if they don't set boundaries and learn how to leave some work undone, they will end up giving up everything. It's not because the church is pernicious or intends to take everything the pastor has to give. The church just doesn't know. I mean, it is inevitable that the beloved saint of your church will choose to meet their Lord while you are on vacation. It became so usual for Deb and me that when we would leave for a much needed vacation, we would wonder out loud who it was that would pass away while we were gone. Then there's a fifth reason. Pastoring is not a culturally respected profession, not anymore. And while the people of our churches might grant us respect, the culture at large is mostly suspicious. Why would you ever want to be a pastor? When I was working my way through seminary, I worked at a factory, and the foreman one day asked me what I was studying to be. I said, I was studying to be a pastor. And perfectly innocently, he asked me, did something happen to you when you were younger that you wanted to be a pastor? I mean, the implication was that something terrible had had to, had to have happened to me that would compel me to be a pastor. And I said, no, not that I know of. Now, I have to acknowledge that the opprobrium for pastors or the lack of respect is not only due to contemporary cultural influences. Some of the lack of respect or suspicion we ourselves have earned. How many bullies are we discovering inhabit our pulpits? How many more stories of sinful and scandalous behavior on the part of pastors and churches can we absorb without the rest of the world discounting our profession entirely? I mean, we know of churches that have betrayed the very people they are claiming to serve. So there's a reason those outside the church are cynical of the message of the church. While we ourselves may be pastors of honor and integrity, all pastors live with the suspicion from others that we might not be any different than the worst offenders. Well, there's a sixth reason pastoral ministry is so difficult. This is not a profession that is usually highly paid. This is not a vocation that will make you a lot of money. I mean, it's hard to find stats on average remuneration, but according to ZipRecruiter.com, the average pastoral salary in the state I'm serving is $31,000, which works out to be $14.90 an hour, assuming a 40-hour work week. For the record, the state with the highest average annual salary for pastors is New York at $44,000. The lowest is North Carolina at $28,000. So the remuneration of pastors in the U.S. ranges from $28,000 to $44,000, which is not a lot of money. I mean, as a consequence, we have seen the rise of the bivocational or multivocational pastor out of necessity, because many churches can no longer afford the privilege of a pastor who is able to give themselves to the work full time. Christianity Today reported several years ago that 40% of the churches in the U.S. are pastored by bivocational or multivocational pastors primarily because the churches were unable to provide sufficient funds to support a full-time pastor. Now, of course, some pastors make a whole lot more than the average pastor, which means that many pastors are making a whole lot less. 
Thus, my being conflicted as a pastor, as professor, as dean, and mentor, and even father, regarding my responsibility to prepare young people for ministry. I knew what I was preparing them for, and I knew how many would not make it. I haven't even mentioned the two most important reasons pastoring is so difficult. No one should consider the vocation of pastoring without taking into consideration these next two, which will be the subject of the next session. So being a pastor is a tough job. In the previous session, I gave six reasons for it being a difficult vocation. And I gave six reasons I would encourage those considering it to consider something else. It's difficult because of the competencies that are required, which inevitably result in pastors being conscious of their own inadequacies. The difficulty of pastoring is due to the difficulty of measuring our success. And we're never really off the clock. There's little cultural affirmation of our vocation. And there is a genuine lack of adequate remuneration for many pastors. So those six reasons alone should make the argument that pastoring is hard work. But here's one of the more significant reasons pastoring is challenging. And I'm gonna say it as gently as I can. Not every parishioner is filled with the gratitude for our sacrificial labor. And not every parishioner grants us the respect that sometimes we think our office affords. So one of the reasons the job of the pastor is so difficult is due to the people we're serving. I mean, if we're faithful to the theological convictions of the Christian faith, which says that the human creature has fallen, then we have to acknowledge that the people in our churches whom we are pastoring are, for want of a better term, simply sinful. Now, it's not all they are, of course. They are righteous as well, and they love Jesus, some more than others, of course, but we should not underestimate the difficulty in leading people who are less than holy and who sometimes can be very ornery. While our people are called to Christ-likeness and while they may be heading in that direction, many are not there yet. So we have to say it is sinners that populate our churches. And of course, we're sinners ourselves, which compounds the problem. Truly, uh, the greatest hurts inflicted on pastors usually come from the church itself not from society at large. Early on in my ecclesiology courses, in my pastoral care courses, I would ask students, how many have been hurt by the church? Um, it was always the majority. And I would then ask them to share their story if they could do so without injuring someone else. And the stories were pretty sad. Churches can be mean. Now, I have pastored two churches, one for 23 years in Southern Illinois, and I'm in my 14th year of pastoring my second church. Both churches have been overwhelmingly kind and gracious. I have to say in the words of Psalm 16 that the boundary lines have fallen for Deb and me in pleasant places. But with that said, pastoring these two churches have not been without heartache. Deb and I have been deeply hurt by the people we have served. Our respect for the persons involved preclude me from talking about those hurts particularly. And the grace we have received from God calls us to extend grace to others. But we have had to forgive, often. But what else is true is that I am not innocent. I have deeply hurt some of the people I have served. I have had to be forgiven. 
I hate it when that happens, uh, but it does. So another reason being a pastor is tough is that we're called to care for sinful people. We shouldn't be surprised by this because our people are not really all that different from the children of Israel. And we should know this story better than we do. And I'm talking about Moses and his leadership of the children of Israel. Do you remember the Israelites' uh, response to Moses when he liberated the children of Israel from slavery when they were on the banks of the Red Sea and Pharaoh was after them? Their response to Moses, who was providing them freedom, was, according to Exodus 14, 11 through 12, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And do you remember their response to Moses after they crossed the Red Sea, after having witnessed the Lord's miraculous intervention when they were hungry? The whole Israelite community complained against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The Israelites said to them, oh, how we wish that the Lord had just put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There we could sit by the pots cooking meat and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you brought us out into this desert to starve the whole assembly to death. Do you remember what they said to Moses when they were thirsty? In Exodus 17, two through three, the people argued with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why are you arguing with me? Why are you testing the Lord? But the people were very thirsty for water there and they complained to Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us, our children and our livestock with thirst, said the people of Israel to Moses. So in the formative community of faith, led by just one of the greatest leaders of the faith, they behaved rather badly, and of course continued to throughout their history. I mean, what is the story of Israel if it is not one of unfaithfulness? And ministry in the early church wasn't any different. Contrary to the romantic notion that the early days of the church were days of innocence, I mean, if you read the letters to the church from the apostles, there certainly was not any golden age of the church. I mean, listen to how the Apostle Paul described his ministry to the church at Corinth, uh, which if you read it carefully, they really worked him over. So from 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 13. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored, and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. Now, the Apostle Paul was not only talking about the sufferings that he received from those outside the church, he was talking about the sufferings he received from those in the churches as well. I mean, let's consider how the Corinthian church treated the Apostle Paul. I mean, any one of these would have done me in for a couple of days. They said he couldn't preach as well as Apollos. They told him he was not very impressive in person. They accused him of being a mercenary, of doing what he was doing for money. They accused him of not being a man of his word, to name just a few. 
So the Apostle Paul certainly didn't have an easy time tending to the churches of the first century. And of course, Jesus' experience with his disciples wasn't any different. And there were multitude of occasions where the disciples were as frustrating to Jesus as they could possibly be. I mean, what did they argue about immediately after Jesus talked about the nature of leadership in the kingdom? Just which one of them was going to get to sit next to him in the kingdom? And where were the disciples at Jesus' greatest hour of need? According to the Gospel of Luke, they were standing at a distance watching these things. And of course, it was one of his disciples that facilitated Jesus' crucifixion. It was two disciples that Jesus said, how much longer must I put up with you? So we should not be naive about the forms of sinfulness that can infect a local congregation. And that can be incredibly disheartening for us. But there's one more reason those who are considering pastoral ministry should think twice before entering it. And it has to do with qualifications for ministry that the Bible stipulates. Again, according to the Apostle Paul, to one he was mentoring, Timothy, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote would be required in the Common English Bible translation. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. If anyone has a goal to be a supervisor in the church, they want a good thing. So the church's supervisor must be without fault. Another translation's above reproach, blameless. They should be faithful to their spouse, sober, modest, and honest. They should show hospitality and be skilled at teaching. They shouldn't be addicted to alcohol or be a bully. They can't be a bully? That is use their power over against those who are weaker simply because they can. Instead, the Apostle Paul wrote, they should be gentle, peaceable, and not greedy. They should manage their own household well. I had a family who didn't commit themselves to the church I was pastoring until they observed me with my family. I kind of resented that, but I couldn't argue with it. They shouldn't be new believers so they they won't become proud and fall under the devil's spell. They should also have a good reputation with those outside the church so that they won't be embarrassed and fall into the devil's trap. So respect of the community is a requirement for a leader in the church? Now what's interesting about these expectations or competencies is they have less to do with performance of tasks and more to do with character. Do you know what the Apostle Paul didn't mention? There was not one thing in there about ability to preach. He did talk about teaching. There's not one thing about the ability to raise money or organizational leadership outside of his expectation that they do family well. He didn't talk about ability to cast a vision or grow a church. No, the, the requirements that the Apostle Paul thought important had more to do with holiness than missional effectiveness. So add this to the list. Not only are we expected to be competent regarding the tasks we are expected to perform, our character is to be exemplary. Which is the last reason I want to mention, but it's really the first reason that being a pastor is just about the hardest job in the world. Because the church doesn't simply pay us whatever it is they pay us for what we do. The church pays us for who we are. The pastorate is one of those professions where your integrity or character 
or holiness is the condition upon which your performance depends. And that's different from other professions. Obviously, we don't care about the character of our political leaders. I mean, clearly that's not relevant. And evidently, we're just interested if they can advance our political agenda. And by the way, for the record, that's a nonpartisan critique. And frankly, we're probably more interested in the competency of our surgeon than in his morality. And how many times our mailman has been married is probably an indifferent matter to us. And I think we just want a plumber to be able to fix a sink. Now, not that character is an indifferent matter to other professions. I mean, please let our teachers be people of integrity and please let those who police us be persons of honor. But the pastorate is still different. We're supposed to look like Jesus since we represent him. We're supposed to look like Jesus since we are ministering in his name. I mean, if we take seriously at all the instruction in 1 Timothy and Titus, then character matters if you're a pastor. I mean, you may have heard the phrase about the great preacher, when he's in the pulpit, I wish he'd never leave, and when he's out of the pulpit, I wish he'd never be in it. For most of our people, who we are is more important than what we do. And while they may never say it, our people want us to look like Jesus. So that's the first reason we ought to be rightly intimidated when considering the pastorate. So let me say it another way. We are expected to do nothing less than represent the God who is. So the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Pastors, we are to be the evidence of the character of God in this world. And do I dare say what the Apostle Paul said? Be that evidence so fully that if others want to follow Christ, they could follow us. In St. Paul's first letter to that church of Corinth, he wrote these words, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In the NIV, in the New English, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So what the Lord is expecting of us is nothing less than being like Christ and so much so that others who are following us are in fact following not us, but Christ. Now I'm pretty sure that not very many of us would ever write or say what the Apostle Paul wrote. I mean, it sounds quite presumptuous to our ears, but our reluctance to embrace his pattern of life, that of living like Christ so well that others could follow Christ by following him, our reluctance to imitate Paul in this matter maybe do more to our evasion of responsibility than evidence of our humility. The truth is that verse is probably as descriptive as it is prescriptive, because here's what's true. They will follow us, whether we want them to or not, because we claim to be following Christ. Furthermore, and I'm not sure we appreciate this well enough, there are severe consequences for those who claim to speak for God, but who misrepresent him. So the third commandment is this, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way in another version. Now this is the only commandment with the warning. 
and it really ought to frighten anyone who presumes to speak for God. Because this commandment is not about using bad language. It's about representing God in a way that doesn't represent God. It's about speaking for God when God isn't saying what we're saying he's saying at all. It's about pulling the God card to further our own agendas. So now you know the first reason I tried to talk my students out of going into the pastoral ministry and why I was never encouraging of my sons to go into the ministry. For the work it is to pastor sinful congregations by pastors who are themselves inclined to sin. But really for these last two reasons, which is really one, the call to pastoral ministry is a call to holiness. And who is not overwhelmed by that? Let me conclude with one final thought before the next session. If you're overwhelmed by the task and feeling inadequate to it, then you're probably right where you should be. Welcome to the club. And that leads to the next question. So why would anyone do it? But I'm thinking most of you know the answer. <laughs>